Good morning, everyone. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would join us this morning and send your spirit to enlighten our minds. And as we spend this time studying about you, that we can see you more clearly and we can leave this place transformed more into your image. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly Atonement on the Cross of Christ. And the lesson title this week is Metaphors of Salvation. How many had the opportunity to actually read ahead the lesson for this week? Anybody? I see a couple of hands. Um, for those who read ahead on the lesson this week, did you find that the lesson... Uh, what, 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 let me not count. Let me not uh, bias you any. What did you think about the lesson as you read ahead this week? <laughs> any thoughts? <laughs> well, it reminds me of the Let's Talk, where we talked a lot about different metaphors, uh, 180 degrees backwards, you know, where they talk about how all these sayings, these ritualistic sayings or traditional sayings that we've got, and it's not explained thoroughly. Well, well let's dig in and see what we've got. Uh, somebody read first the memory text, because this is out of Romans 3.25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Okay. Thoughts about that text. When you read that text, what do you think? Oh dear. Oh dear? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about the payment? Yeah. You know, if you're going to traditionally... Can I read it in good news? Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you just superficially read it... Um... No, the, the reason I said no is because the, the lesson authors chose the translation they chose for a purpose. Right. Okay? They chose the NIV, and it's translated in a particularly punitive and legalistic way in the NIV, this phrase. And we need to talk about that. Let's, let's talk about, for instance, what does it mean, sacrifice of atonement, to demonstrate God's justice? When you hear that, how have you traditionally heard that explained? Payment had to be made. A legal, legal model, sure. In order for God to be just, a payment of perfect blood had to be shed in order to pay the wages of the debt of sin, that type of thing? Yeah, it's a, terrible, it's a terribly unfortunate translation. Um, the Greek word translated in the phrase sacrifice of atonement. There's one word translated, sacrifice of atonement. And that Greek word is the word hilasterion. And that word means the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. That is the word to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And so, if we were to read it, that God uh, presented Christ as the lid to the Ark of the Covenant to demonstrate his justice, would that make you think differently in some way? Yes. How does that draw your mind in a different direction than sacrifice of atonement? It's referred to as the mercy seat. The mercy seat is, is referred to. And that, the mercy seat terminology comes from Luther's translation, uh, where he used the, the uh, German Granatostuhl, which was then used uh, by Tyndale to uh, put it into the English mercy seat. Um, so the seat of mercy... But the, the Greek itself doesn't actually uh, say that, hilasterion. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that often means, in, in common use in other literature, reconciliation. 
That's what the hilasterion is often used for in lots of other Greek writing of the time. It would mean reconciliation. So um, the, the Bible writers use that word as the word for the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And it might, and it, I think it does mean reconciliation, which shouldn't throw us when we hear the word atonement. What does the word atonement mean? See, when, when I asked the question, we, we understand that, but when we first heard it, sacrifice of atonement, did you hear sacrifice of reconciliation? No, even though that's what atonement means, at one meant, reconciling, bringing us back into unity, at, back into one. So sacrifice of atonement is okay if we hear atonement in a non-payment, appeasement, expiatory fashion. If we hear atonement as reconciliation, that's fine. He did sacrifice himself to atone, to unify, to bring us to one. But that's not how it's often heard, is it? No, it's actually heard in a much different way. So let's let's push further through this idea of the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. What is what is the imagery there trying to be depicted? Ephesians one, nine and ten. Ephesians one, nine and ten. Somebody read that for us. God did what he had purposed and made known to us the secret plan he had already decided to complete by means of Christ. This plan, which God will complete when the time is right, is to bring all creation together, everything in heaven and on earth, with Christ as the head. Yeah, and it says in, in the uh, other versions, it says, to be put into effect when the times reach are fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and to earth under one head, even Christ. What's that describing? It's describing, notice, when the time shall read there from God's secret plan, his mystery, the mystery of God in Christ to bring all things back into to oneness, into unity, under one head, even Christ, at one minute, atonement. Now, is this description describing appeasement of the Father? No, it's describing transforming or, or fixing the problem that sin has caused, the separation that sin has caused in God's creation from him, bringing us back under one head, even Christ. So the lid then, if we look at the symbology of the Old Testament sacrificial system in the Old Testament sanctuary, the lid is the symbolic glue that holds the universe together. How is that the case? Well, let's look at the symbolism. According to the Romans text we just read in 325, the lid, uh, the uh, Christ is the lid. He's the hilasterion. So he's the lid. And by the way, in the Old Testament system, the lid was constructed out of? Pure gold. Pure gold. It had nothing else, pure gold. And the lid had a crown around it, if you remember. Okay, there was a crown around the edge of the lid. Okay, so the lid is representative of the king of kings, lord of lords, pure gold, Christ God. Right there, Christ. Okay? Now, attached to the lid, what was on top of the lid? Above the lid? Angels. Angels, symbolically representing the unfallen beings in heaven who are connected to the lid, connected to Christ. And between the angels was? Shekinah glory, representing? God the Father. So we have the, the Father, we have the unfallen host all touching and connecting to the lid. But what's below the lid? Ten Commandments, the uh, box. Well, there's a box, right? Okay. The box. Right. Okay, and in the box is the stuff you're describing. So it's below the lid, too. You're not, that's not wrong, it's just, but it's in the box. Okay, well, what's the box made out of? Wood, wood. covered in gold. And what kind of wood? Acacia. And what kind of wood is an acacia wood? If you actually saw it physically, it's a porous wood. It's, it's, it's kind of got, you know, holes in it. But it was covered in gold. And inside then was the commandments, 
the manna, the rod that budded. What does that box represent? The saved. The saved. It represents us. Now, how is that the case? Because we are defective in character, but when we become uh, partakers of Christ, it's no longer I that lived. Buy from me the gold tried in the fire. It says in Revelation, or in Malachi, it says he refines us, uh, the refines the Levites like silver and gold. Okay, We are the, 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 the sin, but we're covered in the gold, purified through Christ. Now, in the box were three things. Which came first? Which one in the box first? The manna. The manna came first. Now, in the old system, it was this bread that came from heaven. But what did Christ say in John 6 that symbolized? The bread of life. I am the bread of heaven that have come down. You're to partake of me. And so he said, unless you eat my flesh or drink my blood, you have no part with me. So in the old system, the manna went in the box. In the new system, Christ is the bread of heaven and it's supposed to go where? In us. The next thing that went in after the manna was? The Ten Commandments. Now, in the old system, the law was written on the stone, put in the box. In the new system, in the new covenant, Hebrews 8, the law is written in the heart. Okay, in the box, in the heart. We are the box. And then the third thing that went in was the, was the rod that budded. And the symbol, symbolism is this. You will know the truth, the truth sets you free. Christ is the truth. We have to partake of Christ, the truth he's represented. And when we do that, the lies are removed and we're one to trust. We're one back to trust, which is faith. When we're one to trust, we open the heart. Remember, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone opens the door, I will come in and stop with him, in with me, coming into the heart. When we open the heart, the Holy Spirit's poured out into us, and he writes the law on the heart and mind. The law of love is reproduced in us. So, partaking of the manna, Wins us to trust, open the heart, the Spirit writes the law, and once the law the, the, is written on the heart and mind again by the Spirit, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins become alive to Christ and part, start bringing forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness, the dead rod that budded. Okay? And so we have the symbolism here. Christ is the hilasterion. He is the lid through which all the universe is connected back into one again. And you see that connected to Christ of the angels, the Shekinah of the Father, and the restored believers in him are all connected, and he is the glue that holds us all together. So what it's saying in Romans 3 is that God presented Christ as the way and means of restoring the universe back to one again. Now, do you hear that differently than sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate God's justice? Does it, does it make a difference? Yes. And makes a difference when we have different definitions for the word. I mean, when we know that the word justice is God setting us right, then we can have a different view of that, even if it's worded wrongly or translated differently. And, and that was the next, the next point. What is our understanding of justice? God's justice is... Love, righteousness, doing the right thing. Both of you, yes. Righteousness, doing the right thing, love. See, God's justice is predicated upon what? What does his justice come from? His government. His government, which is the government of? Which is his character of? Love. So the law of? Love. Okay, it's the law of the universe is what the justice of God is based upon. The law of the universe is love. So God's justice is always a manifestation of his love. And thus, in the King James Version... They don't translate sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate God's justice. 
They translate to demonstrate God's righteousness. Do you hear that differently? Righteousness versus justice. Yeah, we're going to come back to that when we get to Tuesday's lesson because in Tuesday's lesson it talks about justification and, uh, and, and what that means. And so we'll, we'll come back to this whole idea of justice, justification, righteous, righteousness when we get to Tuesday's lesson. Thoughts about any of that so far? Does one way of seeing it draw your heart to God and another way of seeing it make you a little more apprehensive and fearful of God? Okay. Who wants to make us afraid of God? See, when we think about the cross of Christ and what Christ accomplished for us, um, Satan would have liked to have denied the whole thing ever happened. Realizing he couldn't suppress the fact that Christ came and died on the cross, then his next strategy was to reinterpret it. So that we admit that Christ came and died, but now we attach a meaning to it that actually distorts the truth about God into a being other than what Christ revealed him to be. And that's traditional, traditionally what's happened in Christian thought. Do you think we've never heard this presented this way before because other people don't understand it? Our ministers don't understand it that way, to present it to us that way? Many of them don't. Some do. But a vast majority don't. Uh, remember, where are we in the progression of time? The, yeah. the Protestant churches came from where? Catholicism. And Catholicism came from? Paganism. Paganism. And the core of paganism is? Appeasement. Appeasement. God, the gods are angry. The gods are wrathful, and the gods have to be appeased in order to be forgiving and gracious and, and kind. That's the core of paganism. Catholicism was basically the Christianization of the pagan cults of Rome. And at the core of Catholicism is an angry God who requires appeasement. And when you've got the Father, and you've got, you've got the, the Son, you've got His mother, Mary, and you've got all the saints, and you've got uh, you know, indulgences, and you've got, uh, you've got penance, and you've got all these works and systems you've got to do to work on God to get Him to be gracious and forgiving. You've got them all pleading to Him on our behalf. Protestantism came out of that and, and rejected much of the distortions of Catholicism, but the core central thing that has not been fully rooted out of, of our thinking yet to complete the Reformation is the truth about God himself. He doesn't require appeasement. He never did. He's always been on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so, yes, I think many people still suffer under this idea that God was legally required to send his son and execute his son on the cross in order for God's justice to be served. And we'll see if we can't flesh out more how we can understand this more accurately. Let's go to Sunday's lesson. Somebody read the first paragraph in Sunday's lesson. Redemption is deliverance from debt or slavery through the payment of a ransom. And it's an image used in the New Testament to interpret Christ's death. In this thinking, the whole world became a prisoner of sin, and the law was the gatekeeper. As slaves of sin, humans were heading to eternal death. The debt could be paid only by relinquishing their own life. Then Christ came and paid the price for our redemption, making life available to all who believe in him. Such persons, quote, used to be slaves to sin, but now have, quote, been set free from sin and have to become slaves of righteousness. Does that make it very clear? (laughs) What do we think about all that? Any thoughts? Redeem. It says redeem means deliverance from debt or slavery through the payment of a ransom. Hmm. Did anybody take the time to get a dictionary and look up the word redeemed to see if they're right? I did. (laughs) And in fact, that is one of a list of possible definitions. You know, our words can have multiple meanings, can't they? 
Okay, that's one of the possible meanings. They, they selected that meaning. There are other meanings in, in the dictionary. Here's another one. Redemption means to free from the consequences of sin. Wait a minute. Does that sound different than pay a debt? Hmm. How about this one? It's also under the same dictionary, same listing of possible meanings. To extricate or overcome something detrimental. Does that sound different? Hmm. Well, do you see, we have to go in, when we have the word redeem, we have, to, we have to choose which one we like. The traditional view that we hear in our society, somebody's been kidnapped, and they're demanding a ransom. And then the person pays the ransom, and they get, get their you know, loved one back. That's their traditional view of it. But how many times have you heard the word redeemed associated with ransom? Yeah. Context? Oh, I'm going to redeem that ransom or, or that kidnapped person. No, you always hear the word ransom. Right, right. Yes. The thing that I've heard a lot is not so much that God needed to be appeased, but that when Adam and Eve sinned legally, somehow Satan had a legal right to us, which I never have understood that either. And you know why you haven't understood it? (laughs) Because it's nonsense. You see, the mind doesn't get itself around. And so people will say, well, you know, that's mysterious. It's kind of like we have to take that on faith. And No, uh, we're going to flesh out this whole legal thing in class today. But it's not the way you just described, which I've uh, heard explained that way too. It's nonsense. Satan had a, a legal claim. Uh, we're going to get to that in one of our next lessons. It talks about the law and how it has a claim. Okay, class can't end until you get through all of that. Okay, all righty. Okay. So, so on this redeemed side of it, this redeemed business, free, free from consequences of sin, to extricate or overcome something detrimental. Um, if we see it that way, does it change how we understand the meaning of, of redemption if Christ came to free us from the consequence of sin or to deliver us from something that's detrimental? Does that change your perspective on it rather than um, deliverance from debt or slavery by making a payment? Hmm. Was there any definition that um, spoke about the transformation? No, actually. Redeemed? No. Other than if you put in there uh, to free from the consequence, and do you understand that to mean that in order to be free from the consequence, there has to be a change? Change. Are these contemporary definitions? It's just from a standard Webster's dictionary. Yeah, I didn't... Yeah, I didn't look at the Greek on this one. Yeah. There is a way to understand redemption in this other way, though, about paying, paying something. What is it that holds us captive? Sin. Sin. Lies about Our minds have been held captive. What is it that Jesus said will set you free? That's what Jesus said. The, the, the thing that needs to be provided to set you free, according to Christ, is... You'll know the truth, and the truth sets you free. So we're held captive by lies and distortions about God, and Christ came to make the payment of truth necessary to destroy the lies to set us free. There's a way to understand it in that way. It's it's really uh, still, you know, I don't like that language of paying the debt to set us free because it, it too easily is misunderstood in this other way. But there is a way to understand it that way. Is it not kind of like the song, Redeemed by the Blood of the Lamb? Redeemed by the Blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? The payment of him yes. on the cross. Yeah, that's how it's traditionally taught, isn't it? Yes, well, always Yeah. What about the idea of the gatekeeper, that we are held prisoners of sin and the law is the gatekeeper? Let somebody actually read the, the, the text reference there, Galatians three twenty two and 23. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. 
so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Okay, what does that mean? Held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Any thoughts? But the next text says, 24 says, Go ahead. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The New Living Testament says guarded. Could it be an idea that God was um, like you do anytime someone is totally out of control, you put something to keep them from totally destroying themselves until you can provide enough information and guidance and change that they can actually engage differently? What do y'all think about that idea? I think that's beautiful. I think that's exactly the meaning. And I read my paraphrase of this section starting in verse 21 of Galatians. Is the written law then somehow in opposition to the promises of God? Of course not. The written law was simply a tool to diagnose our sickness and lead us to God for healing. If the written law could somehow cure the infection of selfishness and promote life, then healing would certainly have followed the giving of the law. But scripture is clear, all humanity, this is verse 22, all humanity is infected with selfishness and is dying. And the only cure is the one promise, Jesus Christ, who through his death revealed the truth about God, which restores love and trust, and simultaneously purged the infection of selfishness. Verse 23, before Christ came, we were quarantined by the written law, restrained from continual self-destruction until Christ revealed the only true cure. So then, The written law was provided as a safeguard to protect us and lead us to Christ, the great physician, so that we might be set right with God by trust. But now that trust in God has been restored and we are set right in heart, mind, character, and again practice God's methods, we no longer need the law to diagnose our condition or lead us back to God. How does that sound? Does that make sense? Yeah. So we were constrained or restrained or quarantined or protected by the written law to hold us in check from destroying ourselves until Christ could come and heal the damage and provide the remedy that would heal and restore us. The lesson states that the debt could be paid only by, let's see, is it, yeah, the debt could be paid only by relinquishing, right there in that same paragraph, the debt could be paid only by relinquishing their own life. What are your thoughts about that? The debt of sin could be paid by the sinner only by relinquishing their own life. Well, we have to relinquish our life to Jesus in order to be able to be healed. We have to give ourselves to him so that he can come in and heal us. Absolutely true. No question about that. I I think the lesson was talking about, though, without Christ, the only way we could pay the debt would be um, by dying. Yeah, but you're exactly right. We do have to surrender ourselves to Christ in order to be healed, no question. Other thoughts? The lesson's just saying the wages of sin is death. Okay, the wages of sin is death. I'm sure they don't understand it quite the same way. It assumes that there's a debt. It assumes that there's a debt, okay. I was going to say similar to what Christy said. Couldn't we substitute the word consequence for debt? Okay, consequence for debt. Do you think that's what uh, what the lesson authors were intending? I don't no. think they're saying that the consequences of sin would be that we relinquish our lives. It would be that our lives will be ended. We deserve, we deserve death. <laughs> that's right. We deserve to be Let's think this through, if we can understand it in a different way. 
What is the only way a sinful, uh, apart from Christ, apart from Christ, okay? What's the only way a, a, any human other than Christ could exterminate sin in themselves? Could get rid of it? To die. Oh, yeah, there is one way. The only way you can get rid of sin in your life apart from Christ is to, is to die. Isn't that true? David says the dead are at peace. They don't. I mean, if you think about it as an infection, if you were infected with a disease, HIV, smallpox, okay, let's say you're infected with smallpox, very contagious, and you don't have a remedy, you don't have the ability to cure yourself. What's the only way you can get rid of that smallpox infection? It's for you to die. If you kill yourself, then you've killed the smallpox too, haven't you? Sure. Okay. Isn't that, isn't that the reason for the death sentence in prison and other places? That they think, well, the sin is so bad, the only way we can really get rid of it is to put this person to death. I think that's partially true. And, and if we continue on with this thought, without Christ, as long as we live without Christ, we live selfishly. Would you all agree? As long as we live without Christ, we live selfishly, sinfully. But Christ, of course, came and lived sinlessly and was able to destroy the infection which leads us to selfishness. So he was able to, uh, to die and rise again. But sin in a human, unremedied, an unremedied human, uh, results in the destruction of the mind, the living selfishly over time, unremedied, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit. Sears the conscience, warps the character, solidifies the satanic mold on the being over time. And the only result is? Because it is out of harmony with the basis of life. Sin on remedy, therefore, becomes so incorporated into the identity of the individual that the only way to eliminate it is to eliminate the individual as well. It's the only way. They're inseparable. The character itself is selfish. I see this playing in just a little bit to the new, um, the, the new advertising out that uh, an atheistic organization has put out that says for Christmas, uh, why believe in God? Just be good for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. And their argument against that would be, just be good for goodness sake. You know what good is, so just be good. We don't need God to be good. Thoughts about that? You don't know what good is if I, you don't know Christ, because all good things come from Christ. Actually, the ad campaign is just be good for good's sake. For what? For good's sake. Mm-hmm. They even separate goodness as being godly, so they say just be good for good's apostrophe as sake. But, but their argument would be, yes, we know what good is. And if they even understood the etymology of the word good, where's the etymology of the word good come from? God. And, and goodness comes from godness. So I guess the point she's raising, can you be good because you know what good looks like? No. Let's, first off, there's the allegation or the suggestion made that without God, without Christ, we don't even know what good looks like. That is true, isn't it? Do we know what good looks like without God? No. No. And in fact, if somebody has an inherent sense of right and wrong, an inherent sense of of moral right, moral wrong, goodness and badness, where is that sense coming from? 
It's Holy Spirit's working on us. So it's coming from God. So when they say be good for goodness sake, because you know what good is, well, that's the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit giving us a sense of what good is. So it's only coming from God. Separate from God, there is no awareness, number one. Number two, uh, even if somehow we had the awareness, we could see what goodness is. And that's all God provided for us. He provided awareness. So we have the knowledge of what good looks like. Left on our own. Do we have the capacity to achieve it? So, so even if we assume that we know what goodness looks like, we still can't achieve it. Medical model comes into to play here again. Imagine a village in Africa where everyone there is infected with HIV. And you've heard that in very high incidence in Africa. And in this village, it's been generation after generation that everyone's infected with HIV. And so then everyone has symptoms of this disease, and they all die young. Might they at some point forget what it looks like to not have HIV? And so if, could they in of themselves have a, an understanding of what a healthy non-HIV life looks like? No, they can't even see it, so we can't even see healthy. But let's say a missionary came who was non-HIV infected and was perfectly healthy, and they could see the contrast in how healthy this person is and how sick they are. Can they now, because they see healthy, heal themselves and become HIV-free? No, that's our situation with sin. We are so sick with sin, we can't even see what healthy looks like. Christ came to reveal the truth to show us what healthy looks like. But he also came to do more. He came to cure the condition, to actually purge, heal this humanity, and offers us a a free remedy that would heal us too. So Jesus came, and and it says in in Hebrews 5 that that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who will obey him. He he came and took upon himself our sick condition and cured it. We've talked about that many times. I'm not going to, unless somebody has a question, I'm not going to repeat that. Um. Thus, when when Christ died, notice what Christ died. He came, he confronted the temptations to act in self-interest. Was he tempted to save himself? But he overcame by giving himself. Notice what he did. He did not destroy himself in his death. He did not destroy his identity in his death. He did not destroy his character in his death. He destroyed death, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. By his death, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. And two, he destroyed the devil, Hebrews 2.14. He took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Christ destroyed both death and the devil, not his own self at the cross. And you understand the wicked in the end, by persisting to hold to the infection, by persisting to stay selfish, by rejecting God's grace, by rejecting God's love, rejecting God's spirit, they end up destroying themselves, their own identity, their own individuality, their own character is destroyed by sin. It's a a huge, huge difference. Christ destroyed the condition that brings death. The wicked destroy themselves. Christ did not destroy himself. Do you see the difference? And that's why we can say with confidence that Christ destroyed the second death, as it says in Timothy, rather than paid the second death. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of unhappy people around our circle with my position on that. That's, I'm struggling with, I don't, because I totally agree that the lineage that you just went through, the destruction of the mind that will destroy ourselves, but I'm being taught from my own pulpit that I am misunderstanding the character of God if I believe that that death will be just the natural consequences of sin. 
Yeah, and who's teaching you that, I would suggest, is the one who misunderstands the divine character. One of the founders of our church makes it very clear. The Bible itself, let's go through the Bible evidence first. Romans 6.23. The wages of? Does it say the punishment of God is death? No. It does not. Uh, James chapter 1. No one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. When the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Galatians, Paul says that those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature will reap death or destruction. But those who sow according to the Spirit from that nature will reap life. Now, what does that sound like? That death comes because God is doing it? I mean, this is the biblical evidence. Yes. One of the founders of our church wrote from Australia to the editor of the Review, Uriah Smith, in the 1890s, a letter that he didn't know what to do with, so he filed it, didn't publish it, and it was discovered in the 1950s and published in the first selected messages, 235. And her position was, and which way she saw it was like this. This is a quote. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for him to sin again, and the sure result is ruin and death. Now, I would suggest, anybody tells you that we don't know the divine character, you suggest to them that they check out the scriptures that we went through, and then check out the, one of the founders of our church and, and ask, do you think that this particular founder didn't know the divine character? Because that position, the position was that sin pays its wage and the wage is death. The problem is, Tim, there, there are just as many folks that look the other direction. No, there's not. Just like the Bible text we just read here to start our class today. On the surface, it sounded like it goes the other direction. But it does not go the other direction at all. It actually goes the direction we're going. And it's only because people come to the texts or the passages with a preconceived mindset that they read into the passage what they want it to say. Yeah, and, and we're going to get some more evidence of that just in a second. Um, in fact, let's go read the second paragraph in this lesson. Second paragraph. Christ also redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law was the claim it made against the life of those who violated it. The law itself could not save us from its sentence of death because it could not give us life back. It simply provided the legal basis for the death of the culprit. God's solution was revealed when he sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Okay. Now, there's. I hopefully this is going to get to Kathy's section of the question. She asked about claims and about legal basis. This is the paragraph that, that we're going to talk about that. Thoughts about this? nonsense. <laughs> well, the, it's nonsense in the traditional way, because uh, let's, let's see if there's a way to understand it, though. First off, it says the law has got a claim against us. Can the law make a claim? No. If you jumped off a bridge, would the law of gravity file a claim against you? No. No. <laughs> would it file a claim against you? No, but does but listen carefully. But does the law of gravity have jurisdiction, authority, and power over you? Yes. Yes. You see the difference. It doesn't claim; it just is an operation. 
It's a principle that, that works. If you jump off the bridge, the law of gravity is a law that works. It has jurisdiction. It has authority. It has power. Is the law of gravity an imposed law or a natural law? If someone jumped off a bridge and died when they hit the bottom, would we say that the law of gravity gave the legal basis for the death of the jumper? That's what the lesson is saying, that God's law gave the legal basis for the death of the wicked. As if somehow that law had to be written in order for the, for the person to die. If, if the law of gravity was not written down somewhere, like in a, in a science book, if we didn't have it defined for us and, and written somewhere and codified, then, then when you jump, well, there would be no basis for your death when you hit the bottom. That's ludicrous. And the core root defect in all this type of theological thinking is a misunderstanding at the base level of God's law. People who write this kind of stuff in our quarterly see God's law as an imposed law or an enacted law, rather than seeing it as a natural law. And when you understand that God's law is a natural law that emanates from his very being, the law of love, and it is a principle upon which all life is designed to operate, constructed to operate, that when you deviate from the design, life can no longer continue. A physical example is respiration. Our life is designed to operate upon the law of respiration. If you decide to deviate from that law and tie a plastic bag over your head, (laughs) and you can do that, you have the freedom to do that, would we say that the law gives the legal basis for your death? Well, there's a certain way that that's true, but that would really kind of distort the whole understanding, wouldn't it? Yes. The law is the principle on which life is designed and deviations from that law, the only, as, as we, the quote earlier, result is ruin and death. There's no option, there's no other outcome other than healing and restoration with harmony with the law. So if you tied a plastic bag over your head and you wouldn't take it off and you're insistent on doing it and somebody wanted to intercede, they could cut a trach real quick and artificially respirate you to save you and maybe lead you to the point that you learn not to tie a plastic bag over your head Well, that's what has happened when Adam sinned. God interceded and put this world on artificial life support. That's what's happening. This world is on artificial life support. God's grace has been interceding, holding at bay the consequences of sin. He he holds at bay the principalities and powers of darkness, puts the four angels at the four corners holding back the winds of strife, intercedes in our hearts and minds with, with our own selfish natures, convicting us and drawing us and wooing us back to him. He's been interceding, holding at bay the full consequences of sin, giving us opportunity to be restored back into harmony with him and his law of love. Christ came to fulfill that mission for us. Does this make sense? Amen. Doesn't Paul say that we're not for the law, and I think he's talking about the Ten Commandment law, that he wouldn't know what sin was? That's right. That's in the Romans. For the law, he wouldn't know what coveting is. Were it not for an MRI, you wouldn't know what the cancer in your lung looks like. Right. Well, I think of law as a picture of sin. Sin is killing, sin is stealing, sin is dishonoring your parents, sin is rejecting God. So I just think of it as a picture, and you see what sin is when you look at the law. The law is a diagnostic instrument that helps us diagnose sin. And in fact, he says in Timothy that the law was not given for the righteous. The law was given for the wicked, for those who are abusers and idolaters and all this other stuff. Okay, why? Well, it's like the MRI was not created for the healthy people. 
the MRI was created for the sick people so that they could be diagnosed and led to the doctor for remedy. That's the same reason for the, the written law. The written law was given for those of us sick in our trespasses and sin to diagnose us and convict us. Hey, we're sick. We're dying. We're terminal. Doesn't Paul come right out and say the only reason for the law is to show us that we're sinners? Sure. And also, as we read in Galatians, to diagnose us, but also to quarantine us, to protect us, to keep us. I mean, the truth is, before we're healed, before we come to a faith relationship with Christ, if we legalistically should obey the commandments, do we have some protection against the consequences of sin? Even though our heart's not regenerated yet. If we don't cheat on our spouse, will we have some protection against the consequences of a ruined marriage and, and HIV and, and some of these things? Sure we will. It won't save us, but it, it quarantines us, keeps us from, from total self-destruction until we come to the point where we're regenerated and renewed. And so there's the diagnostic efficacy, and there's that protective hedge to, to hold us in check, even if we're doing it for the wrong reasons in the beginning, as children do. You know, a child who brushes their teeth because mom has the rule, brush your teeth or you're going to get spanked. And that's the only reason they do it. They don't understand the laws of entropy that if they don't brush their teeth decay. They still get the benefit, even though they're doing it for the wrong reason, until the day they come up to an understanding where their hearts change and they do it without any rules because it's in their heart to do it. They want to do it. And that's where God wants to bring us. He wants to change our hearts. So we don't have to do this because we're told. We want to do it. It's in our heart to do it. We desire to do it. It does more than just the physical protection. It provides a psychological protection for us also. Mm. Because I think the more you engage in sin, the more psychologically you become degraded. And so I think God was providing a psychological protection for us to to keep us from falling over the edge where we could no longer be reached, to keep us from getting in the unpardonable sin situation. No, no question. Thank you so much. Beautifully said, every sin reacts upon the sinner. It sears the conscience, as you say. It warps the reason. It certainly changes us so that it becomes harder and harder for us to see the light, to see the truth, to be changed. So you're exactly right. keeps us from becoming so calloused that we can't hear the Spirit of God talking to us anymore. That's true. No question about it. Did that answer the question regarding this claims, uh, this claim over us, this, uh, this idea of a legal basis? Did that answer the question on that? Good. Well, didn't Satan falsely claim us? I mean, whether, whether he had a right to claim us or not, he claimed that he did claim Adam us. And Eve followed his that's right his methods and principles. He it, said they're mine. He did claim it, and, and Christ like refers to him as the prince of this world. Right. Okay. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, Adam was not the absolute ruler of this planet. Adam was a vicegerent, if you will. He was the viceroy under Christ. Okay, And so when the viceroy handed it over to Satan, the true ruler came and said, no, 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 I'm taking it back. Right. Okay, So it was never fully given. This world has never been given fully into Satan's hands. Yeah. Satan has been given a certain autonomy to function on this planet, but never fully and unrestrained. He's always been under restraint. And there will come a time, in my understanding of things, in the very near future, once everybody's so settled into the truth that they can't be moved, or so settled into the lie that they can't be moved, once that, the, that, that great lukewarm body has been split into you, the, the two camps, the, the wheat and the tares, the, the righteous and the wicked, the, the sheep and the goats, and there's, and there's no more middle ground, then I believe Satan is, is loosened from his restraint. And on this planet, all hell breaks loose. The terrible, terrible things happen. Yes? Um, you probably feel this, maybe you can massage it and make it a little more sense of what I'm about to say, but... You know, a lot of people talk about when Christ came, the, you know, the law was destroyed, it's written on their hearts, and you know, no longer 
I'm, this is a collage of various texts, but you know, mm-hmm. you don't no longer have to teach your brother because it's written in their hearts, and et cetera, et cetera. So I guess is that really just I've always kind of wondered well, what does that really mean, and I guess is it just saying that you will know right from wrong and you don't have to. You did put several texts together there. Yeah. The Colossians text about the law being nailed to the cross and being destroyed. Um, and then the Hebrews text, uh, 8.10, that the law be written on the heart and mind. No one will need to say to his brother, know the Lord for all know him. Two different things being discussed. So Romans 2 say it's written in our hearts also? Romans 2 says that those who do not uh, know the law but do by nature the things contained in the law are law to themselves, are conscience bearing witness, um, revealing that it is written on the heart. Exactly right. Okay. So, yes, that's Romans 2 starting verse 12, I believe. Let me answer this question. So the two areas. One, once we become back to having the law written on the heart, what's the law that's written on the heart? The law of love. God is love. So he writes his own nature or his, we become partakers of the divine nature. Okay. It is no longer I that live that Christ lives in me. And so to have the law written on the heart that God's talking about in Hebrews is to have an intimate life eternal. John 17, three is that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ and thou sent. So there is not possible to have the law of God written on the heart without knowing God for yourself. And so when it says no one will need to tell their brother, know the Lord because they'll all know me. It's because we've all come back to that oneness. We're all back as we started our class today in unity with God ourselves and our own individual hearts, minds and, and relationship. So I don't have to tell you that God is loving anymore. You know it yourself that God is loving. You know him yourself. Okay. That's the point is that it's, no, it's, not a, it's not a substitute. It's not a cancellation. It's just that you no longer need the little outline because it's something that you live because it is written in your heart. That's right. That's right. We don't, need the, we don't need the outline. We don't need the diagnostic code anymore. We don't need mom's rule to brush our teeth once we're adults and it's in our heart to do it ourselves because we understand the reasons and we've been, been changed to be that kind of a person. That's the same exact thing Paul's talking about. But the Colossians text about the law being done away with, um, that is talking about the, the script. Uh, the, the children of Israel, if you, the way I understand the whole Old Testament, sacrificial system, and all that stuff, it, it, to make it easy, just conceptualize it like this. They were an acting troupe in a play with a script and God was a director. Okay, and they had really cool costumes, and they had a, and they had a really neat stage, and the script had assigned roles that certain people had to play. And the lead role was the high priest, and only Aaron and one of his sons could have that lead role. And it went from person to person. There's a lot of other supporting cast that had roles to carry out, but you had to go by the script. If you were part of the acting troupe, you had to go by the script. If you decide to, to, in the middle, imagine one of our plays today, somebody just spontaneously on stage decides to. Go, deviate from the script and, and, and act out a completely different play. What's the director going to do? Cut them off and fire them if he has to. You see God doing this to people in the Old Testament all the time. The director is cutting people off and saying, no, you, if you're not going to follow the script, you can't be in the play. Okay? The rest of the world and the universe looking on, but the rest of the humans in the world, non-Jewish, were to look at the play. Like we are the audience watching the play to learn a lesson. You didn't have to be in the play to benefit from what God was offering. Thus you see in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar, Naaman, and other non-Jews who were saved. You didn't have to participate in the play. But if you were, if you wanted to join the acting troupe, you could. Ruth, Rahab, non-Jews joined the acting troupe. But once they joined the troupe, they had to follow the script. And so in the Old Testament, what he's saying is when Christ came, the script is done away with. We're not going to do that play anymore. 
the curtain came down on that play. Okay? That's what happened. And so that was done away with. That's thrown out. And that's what was done away with at the cross. Not the character of God, not the law of God. And if you think about it that way, if everybody just starts talking about the Old Testament system, step back and go, wait a minute, that's a play. God's a director. And everything will get real clear real quick on how to understand all that stuff and what it meant and why, and why God was acting so harsh and, and you know, putting people in the grave to sleep and all this kind of stuff. He's the director. They're not following the script. You can't be on stage if you're not going to follow the script. Does that make sense? Okay. The third paragraph talks about Christ paying our debt. It says, presupposes that on the cross Christ paid our debt and granted us forgiveness of sins and gave us the gift of justification. In other words, free from the condemnation of our sin through the gift Christ bought for us, the forgiveness of sins, we were justified by faith. Yeah, to hear the question right here. Who did Christ buy our forgiveness from? He was God. You see, what's implied in the text? God, God wasn't God. forgiving until Christ. And this is it's hugely important. It, it misrepresents God horribly. But think it through. And I ask this straightforward questions. Was God, Father God, unforgiving? Until Christ died and offered him his blood, and then Christ, and then God became forgiving. And what you have later on, you won't get to it today, the wrath of God. And he states here, God's wrath against sin just couldn't be turned off. What should that tell us about sin's nature? In other words, why didn't God just forget about sin instead of having to pour out his wrath against it? And that's question four on Friday? Yes. And we can bring that right into here. God's wrath cannot be turned off. True or false? True. 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 Absolutely true. Why? Why could it not be turned off? Because he will not. Say that? It is his love. How is it his love? Because he respects uh, our freedoms. Yes. Yes. Understand this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Greek, active present tense. In Paul's day, God's wrath is being revealed right now. And then he goes on to tell you why it comes. He tells you because the truth about God, they reject it. They didn't accept the knowledge of God. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They valued images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. So God's wrath comes because they wouldn't accept the truth of the knowledge of God. And therefore... Verse 24, 26, 28. Three times Paul tells you God does something. Therefore, God gave them up, let them go, release them. Understand, can love exist in an atmosphere without freedom? No. God's wrath is setting people free to reap what they've chosen for themselves. That's what it is, ultimately. And that's why he will never let it go. He'll never turn away. He'll never stop because he will not stop being loving. Yes? Explain that paragraph that they have there on Mrs. White on Friday's lesson, The Wrath of God, that comes from the Review and Herald. Can you read it? Christ was to take the wrath of God, which in justice should fall upon man. He became a refuge for man, and although man was indeed a criminal deserving the wrath of God, yet he could by faith in Christ run into the refuge provided and be safe. In the midst of death, there was life if man chose to accept it. Thoughts about that paragraph? 
He did give them up. He did take it. Christ said, why hast thou forsaken me? Okay, Romans, Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Paul uses the exact same Greek as he does in chapter 1, verse 24, 26, and 28, when he said, he, therefore he let them go. Therefore he gave them up. Speaking of Christ in chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says, therefore God gave him up as our, for our salvation. He let him go. So Christ experienced the exact same treatment from the Father that the wicked experience in the end. And what did Christ do to his father? I mean, what did the father do to Christ? He let him reap the consequences of what Christ chose. Notice this. In Gethsemane, did Christ have a choice? Christ chose. And, and how many times did he tell his disciples? Um, how many times was he tempted not to go to the cross? And how many times did he say, should I not do what I came here to fulfill? When, it, when Peter took out the sword and whacked off Malchus' ear, he says, put up the sword. Should I not fulfill why, I'm, why I have come? Did Christ go to the cross against his will or in harmony with his will? Okay. So the Father surrendered Christ to reap what Christ had chosen, which was to be the means of defeating Satan, destroying death. We read already in Timothy, destroying Satan, and being the source of salvation for all who will trust him. He was surrendered by the Father to that end. The wicked in the end are surrendered by the Father to reap what they have chosen. And what have they chosen? To be separated. To be separated from the Father. They don't want to be near him. That's exactly right. It would be painful to be near They're running and hiding and begging for everything to follow and hide us from him who sits on the throne. We don't want to be near you. And God grants them their choice. He sets them free. And so the wrath of God is fulfilled in their life. And how does it we become, we are children of wrath, Paul talks about. Children of wrath, piling up for us wrath for the day of wrath. Given up, given up, given up. Well, I, I, I deal with this on one of my blogs a few months back uh, when I talked about um, patients of mine whose parents have abused them. And many times the patients will say to me, I just wish my mom or my dad could admit what they've done. I just wish they could just acknowledge what they did to me. And I said, well, let's take that. If your mother or your father acknowledged right now today fully what they did to you when you were a little child and some horrific abuse, what would they then experience? They owned it. Would they not experience shame, guilt, Self-disgust, self-loathing, self-torment of conscience and heart. Would it not be awful? And so people who, you see, when we commit sin, our conscience convicts us of guilt. We can either resolve it through repentance and restoration, through the working of the Holy Spirit in our life and a true change of heart, and then we're not like that anymore. We've been changed. We're not that person. We're a new person with a new heart and right spirit. So we have peace. Or we can resolve the guilt by denial and distortion. It wasn't me. It was that woman you gave me. I didn't do anything wrong. It was her fault. And we build up a lie in our mind to protect us from feeling guilt. And the more sin we commit, the more lies we build. And the more sin we commit, the more lies we build to hide behind. So we're piling up for ourselves wrath wrath for the day of wrath. In other words, one day everybody's going to come face to face with God. And he is the source of all truth. truth. Our lies will no longer protect us from our own condition of heart and what we've done and our own character and we will come face to face to who we are, we are, and it will be awful, and it will be ugly, and it will be miserable, and it will be tormenting. And this is how we pile up for ourselves. So we have the choice. And I tell people this. You can never avoid dealing with the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with the truth. 
And you can deal with the truth now, on this earth, right now, under the umbrella of God's grace, which will result in healing, restoration, recreation, and at peace with God, that we are like him. So when he comes, we will see him face to face. We're like him. We'll walk into his presence. Or we can hide from the truth, not deal with it. And then when he comes, we will be in torment and agony as our hearts are so at variance with who he is. And we want to hide from him. This is the torment. So we pile up ourselves for the day of wrath. Wrath. That's what it means. It's very simple. Does it make sense to everyone? Mm. I read this paragraph that Linda referred to. I've been going through writing true and false. And then I got down to the bottom and saw it was Ellen White. I said, oh no, it can't be false. Really? Oh, you weren't here for our discussion on how prophets can lie. Remember in the Bible the prophets that can lie? But I think that instantly in my mind I said, but I know like texts in scripture that seem out of focus by itself. But I said, I know from all I've read of Ellen White for over the years that she is right on course. We got this concept we have, a lot of us, from her. But she's like the scriptures. If you have the different glasses on, you can read in the wrath of God the way that the church is teaching it. So this goes back to the whole point that people come to it with their preconceived ideas. They preconce- rather than let the Bible define you notice how we let the Bible in Romans define for us what God's wrath is and you don't have to go to Romans e- either go, go to my blog there is all through the Old Testament same thing all through the Old Testament God's anger and wrath is defined he abandoned them he let them go he let them reap what they chose uh, Ephraim is tied to his idols let him go Okay, all through the Old Testament we have this anger and wrath of God defined as God letting them go to reap the consequence of what they are insisting on having. And so it's... it's we're not appointed to wrath. Somewhere it's not in there. We are not appointed to wrath. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're not appointed. God, God did, in other words, we're not determined. God's desire is to never let us go, to hold on to us. His appointment is for reconciliation and eternal life. But we can choose to reject what he has for us and ultimately separate ourselves from him. Ellen White was a Christian woman who communicated truths that God enlightened her mind to understand, but she was not the basis of our faith. The basis of our faith is the scriptures. And be very clear, in her own writings, for those who really value them, she said her mission was simply to point people to the scriptures and have people read and study the scriptures. All of our doctrines, all of our truths, are established on the Word of God, the Scriptures, not on Ellen White. And it's very important that we we make that clear. And so when we read Ellen White, we should be asking the question, where in the Scriptures does this support what she's saying if I'm to believe it? Just as you would if you read any other Christian writer. The Bible teaches that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Can any Christian writer, whomever they are, write truth without the Holy Spirit and enlighten their mind to do it? No. 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 Whether it's Max Licato or Billy Graham or Ellen White, whoever's writing actual truth, they can only do that because the Holy Spirit is enlightening their minds. But as we read any of those people, don't we always go back and check with the Scripture? Because the Scripture is the source of light, not the person. And likewise, that's how we should use and refer when we read Ellen White. I find her very inspirational. She's written very wonderful things. But I don't believe anything that she writes that isn't supported by Scripture. And that's, that, that should be our position, yes? Yes. Do you have a question? I do. 
Yes. I have a quick question. Um, last night I was talking to some people about how about God's wrath, and they were saying that God's wrath was not always passive. They were saying that there were times like Sodom and Gomorrah where it was quite active and where God actually did, you know, send down fire from heaven. And I was thinking, I was trying to figure out how to explain that. Like, how do you clarify between God's wrath where he just lets go to where God actually sends down, you know, fire to consume people? We clarify it, number one, in that all those actions of the Old Testament were God interceding to keep open the channel through which the Messiah would come. In order for the race to be saved, in order for the war to be won, in order for all things in heaven and earth to be reconciled to Christ at the cross, as it says in Colossians 1.20, in order for that to happen, the Messiah had to come. The Messiah was promised in Genesis chapter 3, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Her seed will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. The promised Messiah, yes? Did the serpent say, no, the Messiah was promised? Yes. Do you think he just meandered wrong, just willy-nilly, waiting for it to happen? Do you think he began working to prevent God's plan from, from coming to, to fold? So he began working to shut down the avenue through which the Messiah would come. He got the, the avenue so narrow that at one point the Bible says there was only one righteous man left on the whole earth. His name was Noah. And when there was only one righteous man, one person willing to talk to God, one person willing for an avenue through who God could work, God said, okay, it's time for me to act. And what did he do? He destroyed the world with a flood, which means that he put many of his children into sleep, time out, cryogenic storage, if you like. He suspended them in time. He didn't end their life, you understand that. What's the evidence? What's the biblical evidence for that? You have to go back to what Jesus said when the little girl had died, and he went to the funeral, and he said, she is not dead but asleep, and everybody laughed at him. Was Jesus lying when he said that? Or was Jesus telling the truth? I mean, it's very... Make people answer that question. Was Jesus lying when he said the little girl was not dead? She was asleep. When he described Lazarus as being asleep, and the disciples said he'll be fine, and the Bible goes on to say, well, he was speaking of his death, but the disciples thought that that he meant a natural sleep. Was Jesus lying then when he described the death of Lazarus as asleep? Okay, so do you understand from God's perspective what we call death is not death? That is not what he said to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of this tree, you will surely sleep. Didn't say that. He said in the day you eat, you will die. No one has died the death. Therefore, all those people in the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, God has killed no one. People say God killed all those people. No, he didn't. According to Christ's definition, no one has been killed. Many have been put to sleep, though. Many have been put to sleep. But it wasn't a, a calm, peaceful anesthetic death or sleep. It was a very violent Well, how do we know that? And that's maybe where the crux of the problem is, that you see that force that puts people to sleep, and that seems like anger and wrath. You mean like at Sodom and Gomorrah? How do we know that? If a nuclear weapon blew up right on this building... How much suffering would any of us do? Zero. Okay. When that fire rained down from heaven, how bad do you think it was on those people in Sodom and Gomorrah? However, we have to look at situations in the Old Testament where we can go, there was some suffering there. You mean like when the uh, children of Israel cut the heads off of the 450 priests at Mount Carmel? You mean like at Jericho when they went in and slaughtered everybody with the sword, including the old women and babies and children and everything else? Is God doing that? No, but... 
No, actually, if you look at the context, this is, again, we take little stories out of context. See the big picture. See it all. God said, I will send the hornet before you. I will send the pestilence before you. And little by little, I will drive them out. If you trust me, you won't have to go to war. The children of Israel, though, they wanted to go to war. But at one point, weren't they punished for not destroying everything? Because they were going down the path that they were on now, okay? And you're talking about when Saul brought back uh, King Agag and Samuel took out the sword and cut him into pieces. And Yeah, there's a lot of those stories in there. Absolutely right. But it was not, they're already off of God's plan. That's not how God wanted it handled. God was going to handle it by driving them out themselves. In other words, he was going to cause the conditions of the environment to change such that the people would say, you know, I don't want to live here anymore, and they pack up and move. Yeah, Jericho was terrified of the Israelites. That's what was going to happen. They were going to voluntarily pack up and move. Yeah. But the children of Israel didn't want that. And so God met them where they were and worked with them. So, and I think we're getting way off the question. We still haven't answered the justification thing. So I'm going to come back and answer the justification question. Um, And we're going to have to skip Monday's reconciliation. Go to justification. First sentence in Tuesday's lesson says, justification is fundamentally a legal term, refers to acquittal of someone accused of a crime. This is not true. Okay? Justification is not in the Bible. Justification is a Latin word, and the Bible was written in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. It was not written in Latin. The reason we hear legal terms is because Latin is the language of our legal system. In the Western culture, in the English language, look at all the legal terms we have. It's all Latin. So when we hear these Latin terms, we hear legal terms superimposed, but it is not in the Bible. The Bible terms, and that's why you can go to places like uh, the text in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 that we read earlier. The King James translates that as righteousness rather than justice. It's dikai or dikaiosune, which means to put things right, to fix, to set right. And so justification is very simple. When you justify the margins on a document in your word processor, everybody know what I'm talking about. Justify the margins. Are you doing some legal act? Are you legally pardoning your margins? <laughs> no. When you justify your margins, you're setting them right. You're taking what's out of harmony and putting it in harmony. What's out of line and putting it in line. What we could say from dikai or dikaisune, we could say instead of justify, we could say, make up an English word, rightify. Making things right. Putting it right. Restoring it to rightness. That's what justify means. To restore to rightness. Now, the question is, when Adam sinned, what was not right? What was out of harmony that needing restoring? Was it God in his character, or was it mankind in his character that needed restoring? And the problem with theology is Satan has got it backwards, that we have Jesus dying to set God right, to fix his attitude, to get him to legally pardon, to adjust God's ability to intervene or whatever. The reality is Christ died to justify, to set right, to rightify, to fix, to restore, to harmonize mankind back into harmony with God. That's what justify means. And that's what Christ came to do. And so, one other point, um, it talks about being charged with a crime. Remember we read that, being charged with a crime? We are not charged with a crime. No, no, no. We are diagnosed as terminal. Notice the difference. Being charged with a crime or diagnosed as terminal. If, if an HIV man and woman got together and had a kid and the kid was born HIV infected, what did the kid do wrong? <laughs> but is the kid terminal? Okay? That's our condition. 
we are born in a terminal state. Well, this- it's not our fault. You don't need to feel bad about it. But we're still terminal, and we need a remedy. We need to be fixed, healed, set right. That's what Christ came to do. And we're out of time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this opportunity to study together today. We pray that you will enlighten our minds, that we can see through the, the darkness that has been, been just obstructing our ability to see you and what you have done for us. That we can go out clearly articulating the truths of your kingdom, your kingdom of love, your, your character of love, and your principles to heal and restore. That we can be conduits of your love to set minds and hearts free. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.